Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Our scripture reading this morning uh, comes from Mark chapter 16. It is Mark's account of the resurrection, so it's very fitting. Uh, And so if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, that'd be great. We're going to read just eight verses. Uh, It's pretty short, as Mark is typically. Uh, If you don't, don't worry. It's printed for you in your worship folder. It's also on the screen behind me. If you're at home and watching, it'll be on your screen as well. And so let's get our eyes on the text and read it together. Beginning in verse 1, we'll read to verse 8, and you'll notice it's an odd ending to this to this brief text. So Mark writes, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. He said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling. And astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Would you say with me? The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. Let me ask you a question. Why do you think, and I think this is true of our world, and so it's just an interesting thing. Why do you think cynicism feels so real and hope feels so fake? Why do you think cynicism, why is it that cynicism is the thing that feels so real, so true to our experience, and hope feels so fake or so untrue to our experience? Steven Spielberg has directed some of the most well-known and well-received movies in my lifetime anyway, and, and uh, so many in my childhood, so we can make a list, right? Jaws, Indiana Jones, all of them, Back to the Future, E.T., Jurassic Park, Okay, you could go on and on, and yet what's fascinating is he never won an Oscar for best director for any of those films as, as great as they were. He never won best director until Schindler's List. And then again, very shortly after that, for Saving Private Ryan. And since then, he's not won an Oscar, and how can that be? And I read an article this week that suggested that it was only when he stopped making movies with happy endings that the awards started started to come. Because for the people who make those decisions, the critics, for them, fairy tale endings are not art. They are cheap escapism. They do not reflect the way the world really works. And so they withheld the awards until... He started making movies that were more in line with what they understood of the world and their own experience. Now, Tolkien argued directly against this point in a famous essay called On Fairy Stories. He wrote this. He said, the joy of the happy ending is not necessarily escapist. It does not deny the existence of sorrow and failure. It denies the universal final defeat. And he goes on to argue that fairy stories, fantasy, you know, 
Those kinds of stories, they actually describe the way the world really is. They point to an underlying reality that the world is indeed full of danger and sorrow and loss and defeat. But even so, the happy ever after is real. And in fact, it's on its way. Now you may ask, okay, preacher, how can you be so sure? What's your point? Well, I would say to you, there's a point in every story where bad unexpectedly even miraculously turns to good the darkest moment right when all seems lost when the enemy seems to have won and then suddenly there is this joyous turn and there's an unforeseen victory that just is amazing and the theater claps or whatever it might be so it's luke skywalker shooting that laser into that really narrow shaft and the death star explodes just as it's about to destroy the rebel base. Now, Tolkien had a word for it, and I challenged the pastors. I might be out some money this week, because I said, if you can get this word into your sermon, I'll pay you $10, because it's one of my favorites. Uh, But Tolkien had a word. He uses the word eucatastrophe. It's one of my favorite words. I love it. It's odd. Uh, uh, And you might say, what in the world does that mean? Well, the BBC published an article in 2022 where podcast listeners submitted alternate words to kind of describe what Tolkien was getting at there. And they were just as strange, but there was one I really liked. One listener suggested the word, a hyper-gooding. A hyper-gooding. In all the stories we love, there is a moment of hyper-gooding where some kind of heroic good or sacrificial love that is so powerful arrives that it turns the story toward the ultimate happy ending. And in the story of the world, the turning point the eucatastrophe, the hyper-gooding, was the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we live on the other side of it, which means despite how things might feel, despite whatever you came into this room from this past week, despite how dark it might seem, all of the sad things are already coming untrue. And we can live inside of that hope without fear. That is, that is the offer of Christianity, and it is based upon the reality of the resurrection. And so as we, as we consider this text together, I want you to see that there are a number of things. If you see I've provided an outline for you, there are really four things, and don't worry, that doesn't mean it's going to be a really long sermon, uh, but we'll walk through them together. There is a claim. You have to understand the claim that's being made here in Mark chapter 16. Secondly, there's a response, and you have to embrace the right response in your own life. Thirdly, there are implications, and you have to wrestle with those implications. And then fourthly, there are actions, and we have to get busy with the actions in order to arrive at and live inside of the hope the resurrection provides without fear. Okay, so let's walk together through the text first, and let's talk about the claim. You have to understand the claim. All right, unlike the other Gospels, the resurrection, it's interesting, is not narrated in Mark. Jesus never even shows up in the text. There is simply the claim. Look at verse 6. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. That's it. That's it. That's all we get. Mark is so sparing, so straight to the point. It's only eight verses. And I think there's something to be learned from that, that when it comes to the resurrection, we can say too much. We can try to make our arguments. We can get into the weeds with too many details. When it comes to Easter services, by the way, churches can just get too worried about doing something novel and different and fun and exciting instead of just straightforward. We have one thing, guys. 
we have one thing. This Sunday and next Sunday and the Sunday after and all the other Sundays, we have one thing. Jesus is alive. That's it. That's all we've got. We've got nothing else to offer you. Christianity is not hype. It's a claim that the grave is empty and Jesus is alive. That's what matters, the claim. And so Christians believe that Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son, was Jesus Christ, the son of God. Not just a man, but the God-man. And that he lived a life of perfect obedience. He died upon a Roman cross, not as an enemy of the state, but as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was buried and in the grave for three days and then was raised. He was seen by hundreds before ascending into heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of God. Christians believe that all of that is not a fable. It is not a story. It is history. It's a fact. And all of it hinges upon the resurrection. The Bible calls the resurrection God's vindication of Jesus. It is the proof or the assurance, those are the words it uses, that God has provided so that all people everywhere might know the truth. Because if Jesus was not raised, if the resurrection was a hoax, then none of it was true. Then Dan Brown is right. The whole thing's a conspiracy concocted by the early Christian movement. And Jesus was either a liar and a criminal, as Rome claimed, or a lunatic and a blasphemer, as the Jews claimed. But if he is raised... If he is indeed alive, and if the hundreds that saw him really did see him in the days that followed the events of Mark chapter 16, then he really was who he claimed to be, and everything he said was true. He indeed was God in the flesh, come from heaven to earth to reconcile the world to God. And in him you can know God, you can find a relationship with him, you can have your sins forgiven, you can live with the hope of resurrection in heaven and eternal life. And all of it is true. See, Christianity is gospel. It is the good news of what God did in a particular time and place in history. Christianity is not good advice. It is not a moral philosophy. And the difference, of course, is that a moral code says something like, you should do this. Whereas Christianity, because it is gospel, says, no, God has done this. And that's the difference. Christianity is not about you and what you do for God. It's about it's not about a self-movement of man upward towards God through moral effort or philanthropy or mystical release. It's about the self-movement of God downward towards man. And there's an old apocryphal story of about a person dying and going to heaven. You've probably heard in St. Peter meeting them at the gates of heaven. I guess it's Peter because he was given the keys to, you know, the gate and so forth. And so he says, he meets the person, why should I let you into heaven? What would your answer be? When you meet St. Peter on that day, if he's actually there, if that's how it works, what would your answer be? And if your answer is in the first person, then you've got it wrong. If when you go to the gates of heaven on whatever the day that you die and they say, why, why should we let you in? And you say, well, because I, because I believe, because I was a good person, because I tried my best. That's the wrong answer. The only proper answer is in the third person, because he because he, because Jesus died for me, because he was raised, because he is my righteousness. You may have seen it this week. Probably more pastor-like people like me uh, paid attention, but Alistair Begg, who's a really a famous preacher, uh, he has this bit in a sermon where he says, can you imagine the thief on the cross? Remember Jesus was crucified between two thieves, and one of the thieves that he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, and you know, Jesus said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. And he said, can you imagine that man getting to the gates of heaven? And they probably ask him, what are you doing here? 
I mean, what's, you know, and what's the guy? Like, I don't know. You know, what do you mean you don't know? He's like, I don't know. And then the angel or whoever's in charge there is, okay, excuse me, let me, you know, let me get my supervisor. And he goes and he gets the supervisor angel. And they come back and they're like, okay, we just have a few questions. Are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? The guy's like, I, I've never heard of that. You know, well, were you, were you, a, member, were you a member of a church? Well, well, no, I no, I don't even know what that is. Well, well then, what, are you, what in the world are you doing here? Why are you here? And all the man can say is because the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's the only answer. Because Christianity is gospel and it's grace. There's a tiny detail in the text that you might have missed. <clears throat> I did until somebody pointed out to me. Look at the young man, presumably an angel. He says to the woman, to the, to the women there in verse 7, he says, go tell his disciples. Do you see it? Go tell his disciples and Peter. And why single Peter out? Because although all of the disciples failed him, Peter failed him most spectacularly. Isn't that so great? Jesus didn't say, you, go tell those faithless, backstabbing cowards that I'm done with them. <laughs> Which is what he probably should have said. It would have been perfectly warranted. No, he offers a word of comfort and he singles out Peter because he knew that Peter needed grace more than all the rest. That he was the biggest screw-up. But Jesus intended to make him the biggest leader of his movement because his screw-up was the biggest, his repentance would be the biggest, and his grasp of grace would be the greatest, which would make him the most qualified person to be a leader. We are saved not by our work and our past, but by Christ's work and Christ's past. Jesus is alive, which means grace is true. That's the claim. That's the good news. Okay? But second, the response. You have to embrace the right response. Now, the resurrection you'll see here produced an overwhelming emotional response in these women, and it should do the same in us. Now, the way you know if you're thinking rightly about the claim of resurrection is whether you, if you, whether you experience a similar range of emotions. So look at the words, if you can just walk through the text. In verse 5, they're alarmed. In verse 8, there's this whole cluster. They're trembling and astonished and afraid. All of those words take place there in verse 8. And then it says there in verse 8 that they were seized by these emotions. And so the way it reads in the original language is something like, they fled from the tomb, seized, for they were trembling and astonished and afraid. And if you've ever seen somebody having a seizure, it's terrifying. I mean, their body is overwhelmed, sometimes by a sodium or a glucose levels in the blood or an infection in the brain or some other physical condition. But, but think about this. In this case, it was a truth claim. It was a truth claim of such magnitude that they were completely arrested. So shocking, so overwhelming that they fled. It says seizing with, look there, verse 8, with trauma and ecstasy. Those are actually the words. Trauma and ecstasy. Trembling and astonishment. Now, it's an interesting combination, isn't it? Think about that. Trauma and ecstasy. Trauma is usually associated with an overwhelming negative, overwhelming negative emotions and sensations. Ecstasy is usually associated with overwhelming positive emotions and sensations, but these women have both at the same time. 
They are completely overwhelmed by what they're feeling inside in light of Jesus not being in the tomb as they expected him to be. And the first thing I would say about this is that it's completely normal. And you see it again and again throughout the Bible. As people come face to face with transcendence, God is an overwhelming existential reality. And anytime people get close to God or they come face to face with the reality of God, they start to seize. They start to melt down. They start to tremble and be astonished and afraid and full of all of these overwhelming emotions. And the second thing I would say is that the absence of a similar emotional reaction, even this morning in considering the claim of the resurrection, is indicative of spiritual lethargy and apathy. That no person can reasonably go through life disturbed emotionally like this constantly. It just it wouldn't be physically possible. But every person of faith, if you're hearing your Christian you should be able to recall punctuated experiences of this kind of emotional disturbance. That's just a normative part of what it means to be a person who is confronted with the truth claims of Christianity. And let me go even further and say, whether you believe or don't, it doesn't matter where you are on that, on that range, the claim of the resurrection should produce something like this in you, if you're thinking rightly about it. So if you think the whole thing is ridiculous... It should still unsettle you. There should be an element of trauma. The three women went to the tomb on Sunday morning and the stone was rolled away and Jesus was not there. And he appeared to the disciples and hundreds of other people. And we have eyewitness accounts of all of these things. It's part of the historical record. And in case you didn't know, dead people don't just come back to life. You can't just dismiss that. No matter where you are, if there are seeds of doubts in you, it still should kind of lodge in you and cause you to think, oh, I don't know, and really disturb and upset you to a degree. But if you do believe, it should unsettle you too, at least enough to not let you settle into nonchalant spirituality. There should be an element of ecstasy. That's scary, isn't it? Don't worry, I'll remain, P- I'll remain PG rated at least. There should be a, 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 an issue, a, like a, an element of ecstasy, When you consider the resurrection, there's a Bernini sculpture called The Ecstasy of St. Teresa that depicts the spiritual pleasure that the saint experienced in a rather graphic and uncomfortable way. And it's in Rome. Maybe you can go there one day and see it. She described her experience of communion with God as an overwhelming sensual pleasure. And that might seem strange to us, but that is the word here. And so we're left to ponder that the only rational reaction to, to this is an extreme reaction. Tim Keller said it's reasonable to feel murderous rage or a strong sense of adoration and worship when you consider the resurrection, but those are the only two responses that make sense. You either, in light of the resurrection, want to kill Jesus like the Pharisees did, or you find this desire to crown him in your life, but you can't just admire him. You can't simply read this and say, well, that's pretty cool. He's a good guy. The options are trauma so deep that you can't shake it, you can't dismiss it, even when you say you don't believe, there's something that won't allow you to completely settle into your position, or ecstasy so high that you can't contain it or control it, you can't minimize it, trauma or ecstasy or both. Those are your options. If your heart is working the way it's supposed to in light of the claims of the resurrection. But to be unfeeling, though that's an ideal in Presbyterian circles at some times, it is not a mark of spiritual maturity. It signals spiritual deadness, that perhaps you are seeing without seeing and hearing without hearing. Perhaps your heart is dull and unbelieving, even if you say you do believe. There's a response, 
and you have to embrace the right response. You have to open your heart to all of that. But third, there are implications. You have to wrestle with the implications. So the resurrection should produce an overwhelming emotional reaction in us because of the magnitude of the claim, because the implications are huge. And this is not directly in the text, and so I can be short here, but let me quote C.S. Lewis. You didn't think I'd get through an Easter sermon without quoting C.S. Lewis, did you? So he says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. In other words, if it is true, then it is, isn't important at all. You shouldn't even be here this morning. We're wasting our time. But if it is true, then it is the most important thing. It should get your whole life. It should get every Sunday, not just today. The only thing, only thing it can't be is kind of important. Because there are implications. If there is no resurrection, then what? That's the question we ask, right? And if there is resurrection, then what? Well, if there, if there is no resurrection, then what? Well, then this world really is all there is, and therefore life is vain. If there's nothing beyond the observable world, then there is no meaning to life. There is no transcendent, inherent morality. Political activism is a waste of time. You should probably, it would suit you best just to become a hedonist. That's the only shot you have at happiness. If there is no resurrection, then we die, and then either that's it, it's just nothingness, or worse, we die and then we meet God in judgment, but on our own merit. And the Apostle Paul said, if Christ is not raised, you're still in your sins. That is, you're without any external help for the problem of sin. And you meet God on the other side of death, and all you can say is, but I, but I, but I, and all of those things are going to be woefully insufficient. But if there is resurrection... Well, then what? Well, then nothing is in vain. <laughs> then life is a story. And you might be in the middle, but the happily ever after is on the way. Your future is resurrection, which means everything hard that you went through in this life will be healed and made up for, and nothing will be wasted, and nothing will be forgotten. The Bible says even the tears that you cry, they are like seeds that go down into the ground that produce what will be then a harvest of joy. And whatever you do, if you do it for God, no matter how small or insignificant it might seem, it matters. And it will matter forever. If a butterfly flapping its wings can become a tornado two weeks later on the other side of the world, imagine the butterfly effect of small acts of faithfulness and kindness over a million billion years. If there is resurrection, then we don't have to be afraid of death. Because Jesus has taken away the sting. You don't have to be afraid of meeting God in judgment. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the Bible says. If your faith is in Jesus, you will not see death. You will one day die, but you won't see it. You won't taste it. Death will be for you like going to sleep. And when you wake up, you'll be more alive than ever in a world that is more real with more joy than you can possibly imagine. If there is a resurrection then there is hope because resurrection power is on the loose in the world and nothing, therefore, is what it is. Whatever deadness there is in you or in those you love or whatever deadness you might come across in the world, it is no match for his power. Jesus can change any heart, anybody, any relationship, any family, any circumstance because he's alive and reigning in heaven and there's resurrection power in the world, okay? So you have to wrestle with the implications. If you say it's not true, are you really ready to go all the way with that? Are you really willing to live with the implications of that? I don't think so. Most people aren't. It goes against everything in us that we would live 70 years or so and then die and be forgotten and that's it. We're made to live forever. Something inside of us tells us that. Don't you want it to be true? I mean, don't you want it to be true? 
But if you believe, are you ready to go all the way? Are you willing to stake your whole life on it? If there is resurrection, there are implications. And you have to wrestle with those implications. But if there is resurrection, one of the implications is that there are certain actions that come with it. And so lastly, let me just finish by showing you this from the text. There are actions. The commentators all agree. And you have to, if there are actions, then you have to busy yourself with the actions. The commentators all agree that Mark ends abruptly. If you read it, it really is startling. It ends with verse 8. And, and you read it, and you're like, oh, wait, you were not done. It feels unfinished, which is probably why later copies, and probably if you have a Bible in front of you, you'll see that there is verses 9 through 20. But it, but it should say in your Bible that some of the early manuscripts don't include 9 through 20. And so the early copies don't have it, and the early copies are considered the most reliable because they were transcribed closer to the actual events and they're therefore less likely to contain errors. And so the earlier manuscripts end at verse 8. And so the rest of Mark 16 is not considered canon, and thus we're left with this unfinished story. Why would Mark just end in the middle of the telling of it? What, but what if that was exactly the point? What if Mark intentionally created an unfinished feel to prompt you and me to provide a more suitable ending? In other words, the resurrection leaves us with work to do. Tim Keller in his book on Mark titled the chapter on the cross, the end, and then the chapter on the resurrection, the beginning. I remember, you guys probably won't believe this, those of you who know me well have been around, but um, I've not always been as big a Lord of the Rings fan as I am today. And I remember when I went, went to see the first Lord of the Rings movie, I was unfamiliar with the books at the time, and my brother-in-law talked me into going because he did love it, and we sat through three hours of this movie. And if you haven't seen it, in three hours, you're invested three hours of your life in it, and then it ended. And I was like, what the heck was that? Because it didn't end, right? I mean, it ended, but it didn't end. The ending felt like a beginning, and I, I was ticked. I was like, I, this is so stupid. Why did you bring me to this thing? And who is Sauron and Saruman, and everybody's names sound alike, and I have no idea what's going on. I'm so confused. That's the ending. That's the ending of Mark. It's not an ending. It's a beginning. There's work left to do, and it's up to us to finish that work. And there are two specific directives in the text. And they're given to the three women, but they're given to us as well. And so let's look and finish by just seeing this. First, they, you'll see that the, the young man here, he tells them, this is, um, this is in verse 6. He says, come and see. So let's read it. He's entering the tomb. They saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You see Jesus of Nazareth, he's risen, he's not here. See the place, see the place where they laid him. He says, come here, look. Here's where they laid him. Look closely, investigate. He's not here. Jonathan Edwards said there's a big difference between having an opinion about spiritual things or having a theory and actually knowing, being convinced of the truth about God, having a living experience of that truth that changes you. It's the difference between googling honey and reading that it is sweet and getting a taste of its sweetness and here the invitation is this do whatever you have to do to settle the issue look into these things read the historical evidence if you have doubts be honest about it but do something about it don't just settle into those doubts have the intellectual integrity to do something to ask god or or to do some work to settle those things and ask god to show you the truth and if you have doubts then doubt your doubts and then be willing to submit your doubts to revelation because there are good intellectual reasons to believe that it is true. There are reliable archaeological evidences to suggest that it's true. And there is anecdotal evidence 
But you have to put in the work. Don't be lazy intellectually. If you have doubts, have the intellectual integrity to give it a hearing and let the evidence change, change and challenge your worldview. Come and see. God, offer, God invites us this morning as we've gathered in this place not to just hear a really nice sermon while we're dressed in our really nice clothes and then go have a really nice lunch on a really nice day and make sure to catch the masters this afternoon. Okay, here's what today's about. Like, come and see. Give it some thought. Wrestle with these things. You know, like, let them roll around in your mind and your heart for a little while and give it consideration. But then there's a second directive. He says, come and see. But the second directive, immediately in the next verse, verse 7, is go and tell. So the angel, or this man, what we don't really know if he was an angel or not, we assume so. He said to the women, he said, but go, tell his disciples and Peter. And there's, so there's a word to challenge and change your mind. And there's a word of mission to reshape the whole course of your life. The resurrection turns those who are believers into goers. And I was thinking about this. I just would say it this way to you, those of you who are members here and used to church stuff. Too much of our Christianity is coming. Coming to church, coming to Bible study, coming to small group. We need less coming and more going. You with me? Because God intends to remake the entire world and he means to do it through you. But you have to be out there in the world for him to do it. And the way the world is changed is through a simple telling, a word, a testimony. We go to tell, it says here. So the gospel must be retold. How will people believe unless they hear? And how will they hear unless they're told? And how will they be told unless we are going? Come and see. Go and tell. Now, I, I hoodwinked you a little bit because I said there were two directives. There are actually three. Because the third is in verse 6. He says, and the key to all of this, the key to this opening of your life to the coming and seeing and the going and telling and the kind of things that he would invite us into here is this third thing which is that do not be afraid that really is the the directive of the text in light of everything that's given to us here in christianity if you're afraid the way you deal with your fear is to think about the future let me say that again. The way you deal with your fear is to think about the future. That scary thing, whatever it is that's, that's got you so knotted up in fear, that scary thing, if Christianity is true, it's not the last thing. It's the next to the last thing. The last thing will be resurrection. Okay, you with me? The last thing will be resurrection, and so there's always hope. And hope is the antidote to fear. See, the Christian gospel, it's interesting, has all the elements of a fairy tale. There are dragons and heroes and magic, but it's all real. It's true. And therefore, we can have hope. And in that hope, we can live without fear. And in living without fear, we can add our own ending to Mark's gospel by his grace and for his glory. That is ultimately what today is about. And so listen to the old hymn writer when he says, Ye Christians, hear the joyful news. Death has received a deadly bruise. Our Lord has made his empire fall and conquered him who conquered all. Amen? We have so many reasons to be full of hope and joy and wonder this morning. And I hope that is true of your heart. And so we're going to close with a prayer. And then we're going to sing a little bit more here at the end than we normally do. But it's okay because we're way ahead of schedule. Don't worry, I'm going to get you to lunch, I promise, okay? But let's sit in this moment together for a minute and enjoy the time together. And so would you pray with me? So, Father, 
where we are still racked with doubt or unbelief, we pray, Lord, help our unbelief. Where our hearts are still hard and cold and unfeeling and not full of the kind of wonder and amazement or dread and astonishment that we should feel, would you, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, cause the claim of the resurrection to, to come so far inside of our hearts this morning that it would crack open those dead, stony hearts and that we would begin to feel the way that we should and in feeling the way that we should, that we would begin to sing the way that we should, the way that you are worthy of, that in this moment we would give ourselves in this next few minutes over to the adoration and worship of you, that our songs might be truly worthy of all that you have done for us, Lord Jesus. You who came from heaven to earth to live a life of perfect obedience to the Father and to die the death that we deserve to die upon the cross. You, you are the one and you are alive. Make us alive with you, we pray. And we pray it all in Jesus' name, amen. The one who was dead and is alive is worthy, amen? He's worthy of our everything. And so this benediction belongs to those who put their faith in Jesus. If your faith is not in the Lord Jesus Christ, we would invite you believe that question. He is the resurrection and the life. Everyone who believes in him, though he die, will live. Do you believe this? And if you don't, then we would say, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you do, then remember the promise of this, resurre- of the, of this benediction. Because Jesus is alive then I can send you out with the promise that the Father's face is now shining upon you, which means that he's turning all the bad things for good. It means all the good things can't be taken away from us, and it means all the best things are still to come. That's what these words mean. So receive this benediction, and I hope it blesses your day. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace. Go in his peace. Jesus is alive. Amen.